Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. Uh, I am very happy and very pleased uh, to bring on Ibrahim Anoba uh, with me this this week for our 23rd episode of Mill Liberty. Uh, he is the outreach director for the African Liberty Organization for Development. Uh, and a Young Voices Advocate, and we are very happy to, to have him here. This will be um, our, our first international <laughs> reach, and, and uh, we're, <laughs> we're talking to each other about six hours apart right now. He's in Africa, and I'm, I'm of course, here in uh, Ohio. So we are very pleased to, to have you here, Ibrahim, uh, and welcome. Wow. Oh, thanks, Caleb. It's really amazing to be on your show. You know, um, I've been, um, been a fan of uh, Mill Liberty for some time, you know, following your your great conversation with the likes of the, um, Jeffrey Tucker and Jack Hunter and the likes. It's feel, you know, somehow to be on the show. You know, it's a great pleasure. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm thrilled to have you as, as our first um, <laughs> international guest. This is this is That's I think this is really this is really good for both of us uh, at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, of course. You know, um, being the first um, international guest sounds and feels amazing, and also it gives uh, me the opportunity to um, tell African story. You know, the African libertarian story. You know, we don't um, often get the platform to discuss um, issues affecting libertarianism and classical liberal ideologies on the African continent, and um, to be on your show feels amazing. So I'm very sure we have some interesting discussions <laughs> yes yes and I, I i'm glad you you started with that because i really want to talk about that because here in america i don't think we always necessarily quite understand to the same extent um how important and how precious liberty is for us and how good sometimes we have it and also i don't think we understand on the on the flip side of that how similar we are in our, our struggle for other aspects of liberty how similar we are to other countries and other other societies, um, and I want to talk a little bit about that with uh, with with you. What what are some of the biggest uh, things that that you see for the fight for libertar uh, libertarianism in Africa and and the evolution of the of the African philosophy? What are some of the biggest things that you see that people are fighting for right now? Yeah, thanks for that very important question, Caleb. Um, you know. Um, the philosopher once said, "You don't value freedom until you have, you know, until you lose it." And um, the quest for liberty is somehow universal. I mean, the we are fighting practically, we are practically fighting the same enemy. We are fighting government control of the market, you know, government repression of um, civil liberties and um, the overbloating of bureaucracies and and you know modern governments. But uh, uh, African philosophy is somehow interested. The evolution of um, African um, governance and socio-political structure are very interesting. Uh, unlike America and Europe, where you have um, sufficient texts to uh, present the kind of uh, evolution of philosophy, of how people organize themselves, of how they founded their you know, social and economic structures. In Africa, those texts rarely exist. For instance, if you want to learn about European philosophy, you have, you know, the 500 BC, the likes of um, Anaxagoras, tales of Miletus, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, all those Greek philosophers 
and you know transcending to medieval philosophers like um, Saint Augustine, Saint Aquinas, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, all those guys, they had theoretical and scientific explanation of how the society evolved in the West. But in Africa, such texts really existed. It doesn't mean we didn't have um, patterns that govern behavior. The, the only problem was that our forefathers never um, scientifically developed those patterns. They never um, kind of had a theoretical form of um, political and social and economic structures. But um, most of uh, you know how people govern themselves, most of the stories are kind of embedded in tales and folklores and oral, other oral arts that we learn from generation to the other. And you know, oral arts can get somehow corrupted sometimes when you, when you transcend it from, oh sorry, it from one generation to the other. Is it that it gets deducted or you get, you get some you know, necessary additions? But uh, the archaeological facts that could have um, somehow corroborated some of uh, the um, tales and stories of how people govern themselves in, uh, in traditional African societies these artifacts and archaeological facts really existed likewise. You know, colonialism, especially Europe, looted Africa heavily of these arts artifacts. Um, some of them were stolen and vandalized during um, intra-tribal wars, expansionist wars among African tribes, and the remaining, the remaining evidence gradually washed away um, due to um, lack of maintenance and um, preservation. So um, you can say we didn't have um, clear text to to reflect to kind of inform us about how africans how traditional africans govern themselves and you'd be surprised that um african philosophy never got in, uh, never got a kind of um uh, a kind of um scientific investigation inquiry until like the late or the mid um, 20th century it was that late and First, uh, I think that suffice um, to present African philosophy was uh, written by Catholic Father Placid Temple, if I if I get that name correctly, when he wrote um, La Philosophie Bantu, which I think will mean in English to be the philosophy of the Bantu. It, that was around 1945. So if um, Aristotle and Plato and the likes wrote all those um, you know texts in around 500 BC, and the first text that appeared to be scientific about African philosophy appeared in 1945, you, 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 you are seeing a kind of so wide vacuum in, in, in African philosophical um, evolution. So more, just like um, Father Placid and guys like um, Alex Kegami, they struggled to, to create a kind of uh, meta-philosophical um, foundation for African philosophy. They tried to create the foundation for African philosophy around 1945. So most of um, European writers during this period, like um, the likes of George Doughton, wrote that Africa never had a kind of um, social structure that governed behavior, that we never had um, kind of scientific um, uh, ideals like capitalism, like socialism that governed kind of the way we interacted economically and politically with one another. But that was false. You know, Guys like um, Tempels and Alex Kagami, you know, um, vividly redirect that kind of uh, that narrative that Africa had these structures. The only problem was that it wasn't clearly defined. It wasn't scientifically defined. And the client of George Aite um, noted that if you really want to understand African philosophy, you have to give cognizance to issues like um, religion and kingship. So basically, there was 
practically scanty text to present African philosophy. So that will lead me to the very foundation of um, what started when people started writing, you know, about African philosophy. Um, I, colonialism started in Africa around the 1970 and which lasted around 1900. This was a time when Europe was um, industrializing heavily at the back of Africa's um, human and natural resources. So most of our students, our, our bright stars, were students in America, students in Europe. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, in turn be political leaders and nationalist leaders. So they were witnessing the um, development vacuum between Africa and Europe. Europe was developing very fast. Africa was, you know, um, falling deep into the uh, into poverty and um, lack of development. But Europe was at the same time using our resources to develop themselves. So it was capitalism that was responsible for European industrialization. And it was capitalism that was equally responsible for Africa's depreciation. depreciation. So <laughs> it's presented capitalism as form of uh, as form of evil ideology. And as I did tell in one of my works that any idea that has been responsible for Europe's um, development or industrialization under under uh, when Africa was under colonialism will have equally gotten the resentment capitalism uh, got by Africans. So a lot of a lot of African students like um, Nkrumah, Nyerere, um, um, Tom Mboya. And the other guys that attended um, a conference in Manchester in 1945 um, discussed issues pertaining to African um, independence and um, international struggle. So when this guy came back to Africa around that time, they kind of um, was on the on the political front were advocating for anti-imperialist ideologies, anti-imperialist reforms, so to speak, anti-capitalists. So they were much more glued to the communist nations of Cuba and Soviet Union. The likes of um, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, Julius Nyerere in Tanzania and the likes were glued to the East Bloc against the West Bloc. So it was between um, socialism in the West Bloc coming to Africa against the already existing imperialism of capitalism in Africa. So on the political front, that was existing. And in the academia, most of our professors then were Af first African professors, as I did say earlier, were students in Europe. So they were exposed to all this um, development gap. So they also coming back to found the first Africans, uh, African um, universities and, pardon me, African universities and um, institutions of higher learning were teaching and vigorously advocating in the academic front for socialist reforms. They were, their texts were socialist on the, uh, inclined and radical Marxist. So, you can imagine this going on on the political front and also in the academia. It was at a time where um, majority of Africans, in fact, I also to say roughly 70% of Africans had no knowledge of the scientific process of government or economics. So when the politicians come out and the professors come out to say capitalism is responsible for our retrogression and socialism is the way, what do you expect in such, in such situation? It means majority of the people will go for you know, the idea that I think or, or is presented to be liberating, which is the case, in this case is socialism. So that, you know, kind of, kind of founded the um, struggle for, uh, you know, the kind of foundation of um, inclining African history with um, socialist or communism um, ideologies. But this is not to say that African societies, we are, so to speak, or truthfully, or originally, 
socialist communist societies. For instance, uh, in, in traditional African societies, we had situations where you know, classical liberal ideology, um, representative democracy, um, checks and balances, separation of power. In fact, there were some places where we had no form of government. They are purely anarchic. So if um, these Marxist and uh, Marxist ideologies, uh, uh, professors and, you know, the likes of these first grade, uh, first generation politicians are telling us that Africa were socialist inclined. African history was basic communist. And further inquiries are stating that, look, we have classical liberal principles. So what are, they, what are, what are these guys trying to tell us? So that is kind of the struggle you know, um, libertarians and classical liberals, so to speak, are trying to recorrect in Africa. And we've been writing a lot of texts um, to kind of um, retrace African um, African philosophy and African history to try to present the true nature of the society. And we are not saying that uh, some, some principles in socialism didn't exist in Africa. In fact, majority of African communities were communalists. They saw the society as the epicenter of progress. They, they elevated the society above the individual. But, you know, societies such as the, um, the Igbo society, the, the Yoruba, Nigeria, the um, Logoli tribe in, uh, I think, um, Sudan, the, the Noe, the um, Dinka in South Sudan, the Maasai in Kenya, the Tonga in Zambia, the Jakuza in Tanzania. These are societies that add you know, what you can call communities close to classical liberal. They had, you know, very limited governments. They had um, well-defined political structures that never concentrated power in an individual. Their markets were free. They had, to some extent, self-determinism, purely anarchist. So, basically, African philosophy never appeared on, you know, side of 1945, and the the um, the politicians and Marxian professors took advantage of the gap of meta philosophy to present philosophy as inclined with socialist or communist, and um, you know that informed the general knowledge. And this is the um, basic thing libertarians in Africa, the contemporaries are trying to fight because even we have to fight the philosophy battle before we fight the you know um, the policy battle. Uh, so tell me, what, uh, what is currently the biggest struggle uh, and the biggest fight for liberty that is currently undergoing um, in Africa? Well, there are a lot of struggles. I mean, if uh, I, 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 I would say liberty is uh, a kind of ambiguous word in, when it comes to Africa. You know, you still have to subdivide, subdivide the word to different categories. I mean, you have to trace press freedom, you have to trace um, individual um, economic freedom, free trade, um, and the likes. So it's somehow, it's somehow very, very subdivided. But there are a lot of challenges. In fact, in every front, we have challenges in, in, you know, in the press front, we have challenges in, as regards civil liberties, as regards economic freedom, as regards trade. I mean, in all ramifications. And if you uh, permit, I would like as regards the, the free market side of, you know, liberty in Africa, the market side of liberty. So, um, you know, free market is somehow just like liberty, is somehow ambiguous in Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's too big. When you say free market, 
when you say free market, you can find a country, you know, that has very good policy but crazy policy when it comes to um, subsidy companies and enterprises. So you find that the best performing economics in Africa, like Ethiopia, Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, Mozambique, and the likes, only have some aspect of free market, you know, in their economic policies. But the majority of them are, you know, are anti-free market. They are protectionist. They are, they are, um, you know, they are kind of socialist inclined and welfareist inclined. For instance, uh, you know, in Mauritius. Um, what has been responsible for Mauritius um, rising in, you know, in the, um, the business? Um, because Mauritius is friendly ranked the um, one of Africa's freest countries to to do business, one of the easiest countries to to do business. And Mauritius had, you know, attained this level by, you know, kind of minimizing um, um, the stress of got build permits, you know, business registrations uh, and the likes, and um, you know. Since Mauritius started this um, policy, its um, business um, corridor and investment um, um, investment spectrum catapulted. And you know, in Mauritius today, you can register a, a business within 14 days. You can even start your business within six days. And taxation is very, very low in Mauritius. So that's why Mauritius is stopping the African Business Index. So because Mauritius has all this policy, doesn't mean it doesn't have its crazy policies. Let's go to Rwanda. Rwanda, I think, is the second brand um, um, in Africa. You know, they have um, you have ease you know, to get access to credit and, and you know to even register your business. Um, but the, the thing about Rwanda is that you know as much as they do have this ease of doing business, you know, credit and taxation, they are heavily protecting minority investors. So you can see that in Mauritius, they have um, Easy, easy, easy processor to register the business. You can start a business in earnest. The taxation is very low. But in Rwanda, uh, this policy is, is really hindering um, its progress. So um, the likes of uh, Botswana um, is somehow also in the rank. You can also call that what you can have, a, you know, the closest to free market after Mauritius and Rwanda. For instance, they have a competitive energy sector, which has, you know, equal to their ranking as one of the best supplier energy on the African continent. So these are the three countries you can say you want to have closest to free markets, Mauritius, Rwanda, and Botswana. So I think that's the reason why they are being ranked top three in the African ease of doing business. We have some countries that have been doing well lately that are you know, trying to implement some free market um, policies, the likes of Ethiopia, Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, Mozambique, and Tanzania. For instance, you know, Ethiopia has been diversifying its uh, economy. You know, um, now you can invest in textile and manufacturing industry and even the energy industry in, uh, in Ethiopia. And its uh, GDP is growing at around 30 cents annually. Um, I think after Ethiopia, there is DR Congo and Cote d'Ivoire. And both these countries have reduced, somehow reduced spending and grants in recent years, but they also have, they equally have a um, high level of taxes. So, you have Mozambique who have um, kind of um, massive um, investment and you know in their mineral resources sector and even Tanzania you know they've caught some you know spending little all these economies they are the closest we have to what you can call free market but you can see that they only have a subsegment of their economic policy that, that you know, is somewhat close to free market and a lot of 
other area in the policy economic um, policies that are anti-fair. So basically in Africa, that's why I said free markets or liberty is very ambiguous. Economic liberty, free markets is very ambiguous. You still have to subdivide it, subdivide them into a lot of categories. So that is on the economic spectrum. Mm -hmm. And something that you mentioned to me earlier, and and you mentioned here earlier. Uh, is when you were talking about protectionism, and that's something, of course, that is uh, it's it's a hotly you know, discussed topic right now here in in America. Tell me how um, those protectionist policies in Africa have affected you and and uh, and and your people. Okay, in Africa they say charity begins at home, so I'll start from uh, from my home in Nigeria. <laughs> you know, lately. Um, Nigeria, the Nigerian government has been going crazy about protectionism. I mean, as Jeffrey Tucker said some time ago, governments always think when they have um, the best brains, the best economics, with the best um, means, they can actually control the economic life of the individual. And that sounds crazy. In Africa, sorry, okay, in Nigeria, uh, I think um, sometimes last year, the government introduced a, you know, a policy to ban the importation of rice. Nigeria is one of the countries that consume the, you know, <laughs> the highest number of rice in, in the world. They consume rice like water in Nigeria. So um, the government see that we can, we have the potential to become a rice producer. In fact, they forced to reckon with in that in that industry. And what it deemed um, only necessary was to ban importation. And you know, uh, moderate economists and you know, um, um, less you know, told the government that if you really ban importation, you know, it might, uh, without, if you ban importation without um, letting the local industry grow um, at, a, at an equal pace with the foreign um, industry, it means you, have, you will somehow um, make the purchase of, this, um, of these goods, like, you know, rice, very expensive for the people. And, um, you know, local manufacturers might take advantage of it. So since last year that the government has implemented that policy that, you know, they banned the importation of rice, rice has catapulted to over 200 percent, the price of rice. So and a household cannot, an average household in Nigeria cannot afford to feed their kids to school. You know, as I did say earlier, we consume rice the most in Nigeria. And an average child will eat rice before they go to school. So after this, um, you know, the buying of foreign importation of rice, prices escalated. Um, local producers took advantage of that. It's rapidly transcended into other industries like, um, you know, byproducts of rice and um, clothes substitutes. So it's really tell you know on 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 the average consumer. And um, up to now, after like four to five months of you know implementing of this crazy policy, we are still yet to get rice at the at almost um, a one one fifty percent rate close to what we used to buy. So it's still crazy. And that's kind of um, how protectionist policy affects the locals in Nigeria. And Nigeria is, is not in Nigeria is that the duty for these, um, of this um, protectionist policy. We've had protectionist policies across Africa. You know, we, we have in Rwanda, we have in, um, we have in Tanzania. You know, these countries, I don't know, they try to, probably they try to think um, the only way to get, to get your, your country become a power a powerhouse when it comes to this specific industry is to ban importation or increase, you know, tariff or quotas on foreign importation. And these has really tell on, on, you know, on the, on the average consumer in Africa. So there are a lot of crazy protectionist policies um, that, you know, are growing in Africa. For instance, um, I think uh, one, uh, um, a friend of mine published an article some time ago 
um, Stacey Lovo about um, the Zimbabwean, Zimbabwean government banning um, um, the importation of um, second-hand clothes from, from, I think, America on the Zimbabwe market. And, you know, on the Zimbabwe market, um, new clothes made by Zimbabweans are somehow expensive compared to those that you can easily get on the local market in Zimbabwe, in, on the street of Harare. So this uh, importation of these second-hand products from America, second-hand used second-hand clothes, you know, it's really affected the people. And just like Zimbabwe, just like Nigeria, it's, it's similar everywhere in Africa. Yeah, that's, that's interesting too, because that also, uh, that also provides a, another uh, thing that I wanted to talk about is, is how much uh, because here in America, the you know protectionism is very tied with 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 Trump, um, and and some of the things that he wants to do. And right now, the right has kind of adopted that here. Uh, tell me how much the alt right is having an effect on the global scale, and and specifically in Africa. Well, um, <laughs> you know that's a funny question, but it's not so funny because you know the alt right is is, take, is really taking food across Europe, you know, uh, compared to Africa, because the alt right has always been in play in Africa. It's just like, just that um, uh, we don't get to notice this often. In fact, a lot of governments in Africa, apart from being, you know, socialist, you know, belonging to the left, they are somehow growing on the right wing. Okay, um, you have Richard Spencer and, you know, the likes of Trump and Milo trying to disturb, uh, you know, uh, libertarianism movement in, in America and advocating for more alt-right. But you equally have guys like Le Pen in France. Le Pen can become the president of, um, the, the leader of France in the next year. Uh, you have um, Wilders in Netherlands. You have Trump in Australia. These are superpowers. These are superpower countries with rightist governments in the next in the next one year, where you have Le Pen, you have Widers, you have Putin, you have Trump, in, in France, Netherlands, United States, and Russia. I mean, you know, joining the likes of Kim in um, North Korea, what is the world turning into? These are guys that have access to uh, <laughs> nuclear weapons and you know mm-hmm. all the best and finest army in the world. So the ultra right is somehow getting more strong. Good and as Jeffrey Tucker did notice some times ago, libertarians have neglected the uh, danger from the alt-right with much more focus on the left such that the alt-right is now growing you know um above uh, everyone in the room and it's becoming somehow difficult but on the african continent um uh, you know the alt-right has has always been in place since around the around 1960s when uh, in fact 1945 when independent struggle started to took fold um, they were nationalists. Most of um, the eventual first um, generation leaders of modern African states were nationalists. They um, they kind of advocated for kind of um, African Africanism of African states, but in the reality, they were somehow on the far right. And you know, the spate of um, xenophobic attacks in South Africa. And you know, kind of um, repulsion of um, of Nigerians and Ghanaians in some part of Southern Africa is somehow evident to this because governments won't take action. And you know, when a government doesn't take action against xenophobic attacks, against um, 
um, far right attacks on you know average individual. So you, you want to think about the government being somehow um, on the far right. So um, it's just um, kind of similar on both fronts. In Africa, we have them. They've always been here, and on the world, on the global stage, you have them. You know, accelerating after the crash of uh, fascism. You know, you know. I think I think the world won. The world won um, the war against the alt rights uh, the fight um, after the crash of um, Mussolini and Hitler. But we are seeing a kind of proto-fascist leaders surfacing around around the world. So I'm kind of I'm kind of afraid, but I'm not also afraid anyhow because um, I'm used to it as an African. I'm just kind of very very on the you know growing on the on the global stage. Right, right. You're used to it in uh, in your own world, but then when you look outwards and you see how everything is changing on on places you thought were or at least you know safe grounds for for these kind of places now it appears you know not so much mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> that, in fact there is no safe place in this world there is no there is no safe place for libertarians in this world i mean if you can really have uh, you know the key players in the international system turning to the far right it tells it tells a lot about the people we are becoming you know, if American can really vote, vote for, you know, Trump, it really tells much about um, the American, the average American vo- uh, electorate. You know, it's, it's, it's somehow deplorable. And I really hope Le Pen doesn't win in France. And I really hope Wider doesn't even get the opportunity to become the leader in the Netherlands. And I really hope Putin goes very soon. So I'm just hopeful. But, you know, we have to face the reality. These guys are really, are really summing things up. But, you know, the honest rest on, you know, Classical um, libertarians and and people on the middle, on the center spectrum of the political, so to just repel these um, craziness. Right, right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more personally now. Um, tell me first of all, tell me about your organization and tell me uh, what African uh, Liberty Organization for Development does and and how they are are helping the movement and helping grow liberty in Africa. Mm, thank you, Caleb. Well, um, African Liberty Organization for Development, ALOD, is um, a pro-liberty think tank founded in 2015. Um, basically, what we do is um, reach out to young students and professionals across African universities to teach them uh, about um, classical liberal principles. As I did noted earlier, uh, the African academia is distorted and dominated by Martian and socialist philosophers. And you know what we do is basically go to these universities, organize seminars and conferences and camps for you know students to learn about classical liberal principles. Kind of taking them off what they are used to on campus and you know teaching them what they ought to know. You know the kind of new ideology. But, you know, analogy has always been there. So we organize um, essay competitions, which are continent-wide. And um, basically, that's what we do. We train the next generation of African libertarians. And um, it's not only my organization that's doing this. You know, we, we have um, African Students for Liberty. They are doing a tremendous job on the continent. They have trained thousands of students, thousands of students on the African continent. We whom have grown to found that they are own independent think tanks. You know, we, we have the likes of um, Imani in Ghana, Ineng in South Africa, FMF in South Africa. You know, there are a lot of, um, you know, libertarian movements, uh, organizations in Africa, but we're really looking at the number growing. So um, basically, that's about my organization and our partners. Uh, is, is it like, is it a 
is an effective message? Uh, how how receptive are, are students in, in Africa to to the ideas and the message of of liberty and libertarianism? Um, well, the reception for libertarianism hasn't been discouraging, but uh, it's, it has been equally encouraging because, um, as I did said, we have a lot of problems as we get teaching Africans libertarian ideologies because an average African see libertarianism as an ideology that doesn't belong to Africa, that is not African. So that's, uh, that's why we sometimes bring it back to classical liberalism, you know, trying to um, exhume the classical liberal principles in traditional African societies and actually tell, you know, these students and young advocates that your tribe, your culture has always appreciated tenets in classical liberalism. They have always been free trade, market economy, respect for human dignity, self-determinism, anarchy in African tradition. So that's why you have to really look toward what we are saying. So um, kind of, uh, we, we kind of uh, get mixed reaction, but it's been encouraging. But, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's as regards the students and, you know, young uh, fellow folk. But on the um, adult folk, you know, you, you, you can't practically go to an average African, pol- African uh, professor of political science or sociology or economics and say, sir, can we have a discourse about um, libertarianism? You know, the, an average African philosopher, um, professor, is, is Marxist, is, you know, socialist. And they are kind of dominant in our, in our, in our, on our campuses. I mean, as a political science student, you know, studying in Nigeria University, somehow, you know, re, um, present to you the obtainable across Africa. You, you want to read a text, a professor want to recommend a text for you, you recommend a Marxist test. I can remember during my training level when we were studying um, political theory, and the political economy. I was um, told to, you know, instruct, I was instructed by my professor to, because I, went on, I was one of the leading students in class, and so we practically read ahead of class and come to discuss, then the teacher teaches. So we were asked to, discuss, to, to go back home and, you know, investigate, you know, and study about African philosophy. And we came back to class to say, this is what we learned about African philosophy. And there was, there was no, nobody that, defended African philosophy or tried to um, present a single shred of classical libertarian um, quality in traditional Africa. So it was that bad. And I, and I think this, this is, is, is still, it's still the obtainable across universities. So that's why we try to, you know, first off, go back to schools, teach students about classical liberal principles, kind of exclamation of these principles in traditional African society. And after we've taught them, after the, you know, we provide them with text to read, and they see like, the light and see, you know, how they connected they are to this principle, then we can say, come on board, come and be a policy advocate, come and be a local coordinator, come and be this and that. So basically that's how we, that's how we go about it and the reception has been somehow mixed. Um, that's, that's interesting um, because it's, <laughs> it's actually kind of similar to the way uh, students in America might uh, react to these ideas, and it's it's not. We're certainly in the minority, <laughs> and yeah, as yeah, far but, as that goes. But, but it's it's a it's a worthwhile battle to to fight for. Yeah, but you know, Caleb, I, I don't think you, in your universities professors compelled you to answer an exam question with a tune, like a single tune. Do, do you get compelled to answer your political science question in a magic tune? Um, I know that I know that there are 
you know, obviously in America there are a lot of diverse uh, universities. So some are, oh. are less than others, but there are certainly those, uh, you know, those professors that are, are very much in line with what you're with what you're speaking. Yeah, about. yeah, 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 yeah. If you, <laughs> of course, I I know about that. If you wanna if you wanna be a good you know, libertarian student, you can study in you know Georgetown, you know George Washington, you know and likes. Right. But I'm saying in Africa, <laughs> virtually every university is annihilated with this. Majus professor, the like of uh, Omafumi Onoge, Claudia Aki, Samir Amin, Ruth First, Mohamed Babu, Grant Kamuju, all these guys are, they are the, the kind of um, the foundation, the fountain of African philosophy. And these guys are staunch radical Marxists. <laughs> and these are professors, they are the ones that taught our professors, teaching us, the future professors. So you can imagine how hard it's for it's. It's for us, um, yeah, as libertarian, as young libertarians, taking libertarian ideologies to campus, you know, preaching about capitalism, less of fear, respect for human dignity, limited government. It's so, so hard. It's so, so hard. You have to battle the government on the one front and the philosophers and, uh, and, and the professors on the other front. So, and how many of us, you know, the libertarian, um, the libertarian um, circle in Africa is somehow um, very small compared to the opposite side. So, and the challenge is so, so much, so, so much big. So, I really hope. In the coming years, you know, activities of pro-liberty organization get to be accelerated so that, you know, we can have possibly in the next decade a kind of balance, ideological balance, so that we can, you know, discuss policy issues and other issues after, you know, the basic teaching. Right. Um, so tell me about, uh, talk to me about how, how, how civil liberties are like in, in Africa and, and what kind of battles are you, are you facing there on that front? Mm, that sounds interesting. And you'll be surprised to know that in virtually in all African states, civil liberties is still somehow um, archaic. It's some, it's, I can't even call it archaic. It's somehow non-existent. Mm -hmm. The respect for civil liberties is somehow, so to speak, non-existent. Take, for instance, in the poor countries like Sudan, Rwanda, and Ethiopia, and the richer, richer countries like South, um, South, America, South Africa, Nigeria, and Angola. Civil liberty is still the same. It's kind of the bad news. For instance, in South Sudan, the government recently released, um, I think, 193 Darfuri rebels after nine years imprisonment. And, you know, they, they waived the death penalty for 66 others. So, uh, you know, um, the, the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, is, uh, is wanted for um, crimes against humanity by the ICC. So it's kind of um, trying to play to the gallery, trying to, you know, do a face job so that the likes of the United States and EU can... Um, re reduce the sanction, the economic sanctions on the country. But as he's doing this on the on the on the television, as I would call it, the um, the National um, Intelligence Security Service of of Sudan is um, still indiscriminately detaining journalists and activists, especially female journalists and activists. And there has been complaint, um, reported by U um, UNHCR, by Human Rights Watch, of female journalists and activists in Sudan getting raped and sexually molested. So, you know, there have also been detainments in, in, in public, uh, in private offices. You know, politicians practically detain a critical journalist in their office, in unmarked buildings, in, in their private houses. Is that crazy? And um, following the, I think, um, the November 2016 crackdown, a popular opposition figure was detained for 55 days without trial. So that is in Sudan. And in Sudan is one of the poorest countries in Africa. Then you go to the country I mentioned earlier as uh, one of the fastest growing economies in Africa, Rwanda. You know, I, I stated that Rwanda is kind of the second or, you know, the third fastest growing economy in Africa. 
in Rwanda, as you will see, there has been repression against journalists. In fact, uh, an, an Indian um, writer, what is his name, um, Anjan um, Sundaram, if I'm not mistaken, he published a book called uh, titled The Bad News, Last Journalist in a Dictatorship, where he presents the horrible cases of Paul Kigami and his guys against journalists in Rwanda. In Rwanda, there have been, been self-censorship. You know, the head of the Rwanda Media Commission, uh, Media Commission was, um, you know, was kind of a... He kind of exiled the country to the Netherlands for his own safety because he published a report that condemned government um, repression of journalists. There have been um, the detainment of, you know, of individuals. You know, a blogger, I think recently, Joseph Mkwasi, um, is um, currently being tried. You know, his trial started yesterday. He's currently being tried for allegedly um, providing um, false information about genocide and uh, kind of promoting genocide ideology. And the Rwandan government is, is kind of so, so much staunch on cracking down against any issues as regards genocide. As you can recall, Rwanda experienced genocide in 1994, which led to death of about 2 million Rwandans between the Utsis and Tutsi. And it, it, just to show how this Rwandan government is so, so much against um, the, um, the media, it's, it's closed down the BBC um, Kiarwanda broadcast, I think, in 2014 or 2011. So if the Rwanda media, if Rwanda government can shut down the lack of the BBC in the country, so who are the average bloggers in that country? So that is about Rwanda. And if you can recall, I said Ethiopia is, is kind of the number one fastest growing economy in Africa. In Ethiopia, civil liberties practically doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, um, there are frequently, you know, you know government um, in intervention in basic individual life. In fact, in Ethiopia, the government practically, you know, control every aspect of the, of, of the country. Um, you know, um, journalists have been, you know, detained without trial. Um, you know, um, independent um, indexes and and um, and um, reports have really put human rights violation in, in Ethiopia in a crazy fold. Independent TVs, like you know, I can't talk about, but independent TV stations, radio stations, they get shut down most of you know, most of the time. You know, website gets shut down, and you know. This is because um, in, in, in Ethiopia, the political spectrum is, is kind of controlled by a single man. You'll be surprised that the federal and the regional parliaments in Rwanda is, you know, is 100% controlled by the ruling party. That you can't find an opposition figure in the local chambers, nor in the federal chamber. That's why in, um, I think in 2009, the, the government passed um, a bill, which is called um, the Charities and Societal um, proclamation acts that um, forbid any kind of donation to any civil liberty organization that is critical of the government. So these are in countries like, yeah, these are in countries that are, you know, are the poorer countries, but well-performing economies like Rwanda, um, Ethiopia, and Sudan. But you come to the big guys like Nigeria and South Africa. In Nigeria recently, um, the government um, arrested, I think in, uh, that would be in 2015, the leader of um, Radio Biafra and the leader of the um, indigenous people of Biafra. You know, Biafra is, um, is a kind of, um, uh, okay, let me start. Nigeria was amalgamated in 1914 by the Britain. Uh, this amalgamation brought together three tribes, Yoruba, Hausa, and Igbo. The Igbo, in around 1976, I think, felt they had been marginalized, so they called for a kind of cessation since the amalgamation was done by the British, not by Nigerians. So 
this the um, the call for secession led to civil war that lasted around ten years from around 1960, 1967 to around 1970. And after, since then, you know, the Igbo have been kind of calling for secession. And you know, in 2015, the leader of contemporary IPOB was arrested in I think Lagos because of his secessionist um, um, broadcast in London and you know recruiting people from that that tribe to kind of challenge the government to to um, let off the Biafran people. So in, even in Nigeria, that that exists, and in South Africa, there have been xenophobic attacks on um, you know. Um, Nigerians and Mozambicans and you know people of various tribes. So civil liberties in Africa is somehow I don't say non-existent or practically close to that. Mm-hmm. So so really hoping in the next in the next you know in the next few years this can really get get um, you know addressed. Um, so one more thing before before we move on real quick, I, I just want to touch on this real quick to, just to see your perspective on this. Do you think do you think that the time and the point at which people just get fed up with with uh, the government in each respected country. Uh, do you think that there's a point where people just get fed up and uh, and they go violent about this, or or they try to amend it peacefully, or or what? What's your perspective on that? I mean, you know, you, you know, human beings will always be human beings. When you push a man to the wall. It doesn't have an option other than to bounce back. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't condone violence, but right. You know, the government in Africa is so, so crazy, so to speak, and we have no other option sometimes than to resort to violence. You know, these people, you know, these uh, protesters and you know activists, sometimes after frustrating, after being frustrated by by the government or in prison and the likes, and it seems like they don't want to listen to them. They resort to violence, though we don't condone violence in any form. But I think, you know, you, you can't compare our societies to, you know, much more developed society like America. I mean, you guys have the institution to to limit government's control of, you know, of the system. I mean, I was reading some time ago about um, the rigorous process. Uh, Elizabeth Warren subjected the likes of um, Elizabeth, uh, Betsy DeVos and other Trump appointees to in the in the, in the Senate. You know, that's how you guys you guys minimize or control the government. But in Africa, you cannot just you can't just say you want to challenge the status quo or you want to challenge the 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 um, the ideas of the government. Is that you get arrested or you get killed? So that's why I don't often blame people when they resort to violence in Africa to to you know you know ensure that liberty. But I won't I won't condone it in any form. But you know, it's just it's just human is human nature. Right, yeah. There comes there comes a point where after you try so many times over and over, and even you know that that's that's how America was was born. You know, our, our American yeah, Revolution wasn't even it wasn't something that like we tried this the first time. This was at the absolute breaking point that we had a revolution. Um, mm-hmm. So I completely understand mm-hmm. that. Uh, so yeah. I, I want to focus on on you for a little bit here before we before we go. Um, where did you, you know, get inspired by, by these ideas and how did you come across them and, and what, what makes you so, so keen to liking the ideas of liberty? Uh, you don't care that you'd be surprised that up until my third year in school, I was a staunch Marxist because I was brought up by a Marxist professor. I was mentored by one 
and 100% of my lecturers were, you know, Marxists. So I love the idea because Marxism is very simple. And if you really want to pick a book about, you know, free market, you for instance, I, I can remember going to the library and seeing um, Mrs. and uh, and Ayek and you know, Mrs. and Ayek. Those books are somehow so so ambiguous. You want to read these are technical terms in there, but you, pick, for instance, or oh, oh, um, um, Karl Marx or some other you know German Marxists. Those are simple texts that you can easily understand that can reflect your your present situation. I mean. It was at a time where the students were suffering, where we pray through our nose to pay for tuition, where capitalists, you know, the capitalist system in Africa, as they call it, is very crony. So Marxist ideologies, you know, was appealing to us then, especially me. But it was until like 2013 in my third year when um, AfricanLiberty.org organized an outreach program to my, to my campus when um, I came across this book edited by Tom Palmer, while Liberty co-authored by my good friend, Olmai Walker, and the likes, you know, where I read about, you know, ideas that promoted free society. It, was, it coincided with a time when I was reading texts from Max, from Edgar, from Samir Amin, and the likes. So I was kind of, okay, I've read this for the past three years, and this is telling, this, you know, this single book, this yellow book, is telling me another thing entirely. So, okay, let me make some inquiry. So I followed up with the further readings on the text. So I, I, go, I, I went back to my library, and I read... Ayek wrote to Sabdom, and that book changed my life. It changed the, my entire ideological um, thinking. Hmm. So that really bad the kind of um, transition from the KG, the subjected, you know, subjected corner that I was in. So I was subjected to learning Marxism in holistic form. So I, I, I began to migrate gradually, reading Ayek, reading Bastia, the law. Um, then I get to read Iran, some 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 essays from uh, by, by Iran online. Then so that's how I begin. And after my grad, you know, close to my graduation, I co-pioneered the establishment of my school's um, African Liberty Student Organization. It, it was the first pro-liberty organization on my campus, and I became the dean secretary throughout his inaugural year. And then after that, after school, I volunteered for African Liberty Organization for Development, where I became a development assistant. Um, and after that, I transcend to become the director of outreach. And up to now, I've published um, some some policy papers and journals. I've I've published a lot of op-eds, and I frequently appear in the media, you know, on running commentary and defending libertarian stance on issues. And I've been taking these ideas back to universities um, and you know the communities to really preach the gospel of liberty to um, other Africans. And you know, guys like me, I've also been doing this across the continent. So um, that was how I met liberty. And you know, the way I met is is very. It's, it's very funny, but it's very equally assuring that, you know, we can always learn of ideas that promote a free society while in school. So which informed that going back to school and, you know, meeting the students when they are, uh, you know, studying about, you know, the contrasting, contrasting ideologies. I, I really like that, too, because it's <laughs> it, it shows that uh, liberty is something that, you know, it's it's kind of written uh, inside yeah. all of us, you know, it's something that we yeah. all understand when when we when the connections are finally made. We just have to of have those connections made. Of course, even Marx himself had mm -hmm. some had some of liberty in himself. If you really read Marx, some of Marx's um, critical texts, you'll find out that sometimes he speaks as a libertarian. You know, you can't just you can't just you can't just avoid that in, in you know in um, virtue of man. You know, right, freedom, yeah. self-determination. Everybody loves it. 
yeah, that's that's you know that's what Jefferson was talking about when he when he spoke of the unalienable truths. I mean that everyone mm-hmm. has an inherent draw to to be free. Everyone wants to be free. It's only whenever people get uh, in in this collective uh, organization and this and this collective mindset that people start yeah. making sacrifices to that liberty. But the default position for for human beings is always like, I want to be free. And I, I don't want I don't want anything else but my own human freedom to be able to do what I want to do. Of course, and and that's what Tom Palmer stressed in one of his essays that libertarianism freedom is not inherent to any culture. It's not like specific to any or any kind of origin. It's it's it's, it's obtainable in every yeah yeah yeah. It's obtainable in every it's culture. Human nature. And it's yeah yeah. It's human nature. It's until you go back to the root and find it. It's always there. It has always been there. And that's why I sometimes get kind of depressed when you guys talk about Jefferson, George Washington and Adam and the likes, you know, you guys had, you know, spectacular individuals in the likes of Jefferson and the likes, but I don't know what has happened to America of late. You know, you guys used to be the fountain of liberty and, you know, libertarianism in the world. I yeah, yeah, and you it, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, the, that's the reality. <laughs> that's the reality, Caleb. If, um, if the, libertarian, the libertarian movement in America isn't getting so so strong as you should be getting by the day i mean what do you want to talk about for you know for places like africa mm. you know so we really 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 require you guys to you know win the battle against the alt-right i mean you know take richard spencer to where he belongs and you know just make him not to troll events you know libertarian events and the likes and you know practically just just win over this uh, philosophical battle and you know it can inspire it can inspire a lot of lot of guys cross continents you know cross border wise so that's fantastic yeah and and yeah. I, I really enjoyed uh, speaking to you Ibrahim because uh, it it really gives I think it it gave me and it gave it gives a lot of my listeners um, a lot of perspective and it, it kind of makes you realize that uh, there's something that's worth fighting for when you're fighting for. Uh, when you're fighting for liberty, and and especially here in America, because if 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 there's no liberty in America, you know, then how can you expect it to to be anywhere else? Um, and I I hope that people really learned and and really appreciated what uh, what you had to say and 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 the voice that you have. And um, where can people find you on social media? Well. Um, I'm much more active on Facebook. My my username is um, Ibrahim B Anoba, and on, on Twitter you can find me at um, Ibrahim underscore Anoba, Ibrahim underscore Anoba, or Instagram I'm at Ibrahim Anoba underscore Liberty, Ibrahim Anoba underscore Liberty. Or if you want to email me, tunde.anoba@gmail.com, T-U-N-D-E dot Anoba at gmail.com. So I'll be glad to hear from you. Wonderful. Ibrahim, uh, thank you again so much. I, I've really appreciated this, and um, I think this will be a really great interview. And I look forward to all the opportunities that uh, that we have. Looking forward to in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really, I really wish you um, outset a great year, and um, you know, everyone that working that's you know that works at um, outset. And um, I just to clarify, people didn't shouldn't think that the Bolivian struggle is peculiar to the United States or Europe. It's also obtainable here in Africa, and as you know, as much as you guys are struggling with government there, we are equally struggling with government here. So um, it's a universal struggle, and we hope we can win the fight very, very soon. And um, 
you know, it's an unhandy game, seriously, because it's human nature. People really want to oppress. They want to limit the freedom of others. So, but we, we really hope we get to um, impart some changes. And, you know, I'm, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you, you get me, you give me the chance to um, speak on your show. And um, so I, I really look forward to some of the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you had a really great point there. Uh, it's, it's a human struggle. And, and this is something that, you know, transcends national borders. And just the fact that we're doing this uh, is, is, you know, an advancement of liberty in and of itself. So I, oh. I was, I was thrilled to be able to, to have you. And um, uh, for for those of us listening here, uh, I, I hope that you will go and, and follow Ibrahim and uh, you know, follow his work, and you can follow me at Caleb Franz on Twitter, and follow the show at Mill Liberty on Twitter, uh, and then subscribe to us on iTunes so that you will never miss an episode and never miss an update. Uh, next week we have uh, Mohammed Shaker. He'll be on. He's, of course, you you probably know of him. He is um, uh, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom, his own podcast there, and uh, he's the chair of the. Tampa Bay region of the Republican Liberty Caucus. And we can't wait to have him on next week. And until then, we'll see you.